Whether you're starting a game or starting your day, you need to pick a starting lineup and you're going to want the starter from Jack Black. Loaded with the superior skincare the pros love, Kings fans can get the starter for just $10, shipping included. Available exclusively at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, the starter has four of Jack Black's best-selling skincare and shave products, plus a full-sized intense therapy lip balm, SPF 25. Here's to the winning combination for 2023, the LA Kings and the starter from Jack Black. $10 plus free shipping, available at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, while supplies last. You're listening to an L.A. Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit lakings.com slash podcast. Volardi with some options to pass to. Dursey up top. A feed for Fiala. He scores! You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the L.A. Kings. Now the Kings will have a look at the empty net. Fiala for the hat trick. He's fouled from behind and puts it in anyway. Now... Here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. I am Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. It's a great episode today, if I do say so myself. You demanded his return, so we've got Cameron Gauntz back on the podcast, breaking down the performances of the LA Kings prospects that participated in the World Junior Championship. We're crowning a King of the Week. But before we do any of that, I want to direct your attention to some LA Kings audio options that you may not be aware of. I host the LA Kings pregame radio show for every home game. It's called LA Kings Game Night, and you can hear it on the LA Kings Audio Network, which you can find on iHeartRadio. I'm bringing it up because I tend to play a lot of audio from Todd McClellan and the Kings players when we speak to them after morning skates, practices, post games. It's a place for me to dive a little deeper into some stats and storylines that change too quickly for the schedule and pace of this podcast. We make... LA Kings Game Night, and Kings Talk, the post-game show with Nick Nixon and Daryl Evans, available as downloadable podcast episodes after each home game. They're made available on a separate podcast feed from this one, but you can subscribe to it just like you do with this one, and that feed is called LA Kings Insider Audio. So if you'd like to hear those pregame shows, complete with quotes from the players and coaches, and you'd like to hear Nick and Daryl's recaps of the games, as well as the fans that call in after those games, Go ahead, subscribe to the LA Kings Insider Audio podcast feed. Uh, You should be able to find it wherever you get your podcasts from. All right, on with the show. It's time to crown another King of the Week. To help me do that this week is Eddie Garcia. Eddie is the host of Locked on LA Kings. He's worked in sports media for the past 30 years, 20 plus years at the Fox Sports Radio Network. He's also the co-host of The Puck Podcast, a weekly NHL review show that's been putting out content for the past 16 years, and a passionate LA Kings fan for the last 30 years. How are you doing today, Eddie? I'm doing great, uh, and it it does help that the Kings are doing pretty great as well right now. It does. It, Every now and then a week will come by, and I'll have somebody help me out and do this, and I'll feel really guilty about tossing them, you know, a a rough week to have to choose from this week. Lots of people to choose from. Um, we are talking about the three games against Boston, Dallas, and Vegas, or I should say Dallas, Boston, and Vegas. Um, before we get into our selections though, Eddie, I mean, a really strong week, like you said. Yeah. Um, I think we're all 
Really pleased to see the way the Kings are playing overall, even in the loss to Boston, two great periods. Things got a little bit uh, away from them for a stretch there in the third, and it cost them, but certainly no shame in losing to uh, that team. Um, so, yeah, I think I love the way that they're playing. Obviously, the results are more often than not being there. Um, so, yeah, so far, so good. Let's keep it going. I do want to talk about that Boston game for just a second because I heard you echo a sentiment that I heard a lot of Kings fans echo, which is, yeah, we wish they would have won. But, you know, I think the way I put it on Twitter is sometimes you just lose. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Well, I think <laughs> I, I remember going back specifically to the Minnesota game early on, mm-hmm. the 7-6 win. And I just watched it. I'm like, yeah, I'm happy with the result, but that wasn't enjoyable. Uh, that's not going to get it done for us. So I get it's a result. Bottom line business wins or wins, but man, I, that, that was not the way we want to play. And, and the same thing with Boston. You know, I, I, I remember thinking after two periods, you know what? I, of course I want to win. I want to see him get, get it, get, get, beat, beat Boston twice in the same season. But if we don't, and we don't just collapse in the third. It, it, I'm okay with it. So you're right. Yeah, sometimes you do just lose. Yeah. I mean, there's so many cliches and, you know, you can't win them all is, is, is one of the truest um, and repeated often for a reason. But let's hop into the king of the week. Eddie, we'll start with you. Your honorable mention for this week. I'm going to go with uh, the captain. I'm going to go with Andre Kopitar. And I, I want to say that I specifically picked a couple of guys who are key on the penalty kill because we all know what an emphasis that has been. Rob Blake spelled it out to uh, us in the media and we all knew it, but just him saying it was more emphasis to the team and to everyone else. And it's been a lot better of late. Uh, You know, you go up against three teams that are all in the top 10 on the power play and you give up one goal in seven opportunities. Uh, It's pretty good. So I wanted to also kind of, point out a couple of guys who play on the PK and Kopi is obviously one of them but he also had a goal and two assists and we know the great all-around game that he normally plays and I know he's he's you know you want to say he's lost a step or whatever um, but he's still you know the captain still is out there night in and out get, getting it done and uh, so because of his work on the PK uh, and the uh, the goal and the two assists I'm going to make Andre Kobitar my honorable mention the pass that he had on the shorthanded goal against Vegas um, maybe I'm you know hyper focusing on a silly little detail, but the fact no, that I don't he, think you are the fact that he had the presence of mind to see that a play off the boards would have been the safer play. Right? I don't think he anticipated that turning into a goal. I don't think anybody do, ever does on a short-handed situation. But to play that off the boards, to put it into space, to keep it op- as far away from the Vegas power play as possible while still moving the puck up the ice. Um, You know, we had an opportunity to talk to Todd McClellan this morning. Um, They canceled practice, but he met and spoke with uh, the media that was assembled. And, and he has spent a lot of time talking about risk versus reward and talk about a play that was all, you know, almost no risk. Um, I think Jim Fox even mentioned it on the broadcast during the Vegas game, right? He could have tried to hit him on the tape. He could have tried to, send it through the middle, be more aggressive. And he didn't. He just played it on the outside. But from, right, 80 feet away on his, I mean, mm-hmm. it was just a great, yeah. No, I, and, I, I, and I remember I saw it developing, and I even thought that that's the play, but it's easy to see it watching it on TV. He's yeah. on the ice, and things yeah. are flying around, and he still recognized that that was, you know, the right play or the safe play or the the, the smart play. So, yeah, that I, I agree with you. That was a great play. There's a really 
silly little metric I use. It's not even a metric. Um, but if I find myself saying out loud, nice play, mm-hmm. I try and notice how many times it is a specific person or player that that happens. And before, you know, well, but well, well before moments before the goal is scored, but before the shot on net even occurred, I, as soon as Kovatar made that pass, I just went, Oh, nice play. And then, you know, whatever it was a second and a half later, it's a short and a goal and you go, yeah, yeah, that was a really nice play. Um, all right. I am going with, uh, Brant Clark for my honorable mention (laughs) Um, because, you know, team Canada wins the gold. Um, Brant Clark has, I think a goal and three assists in the final two games of the tournament for team Canada, including the gold medal winning goal in overtime. Um, a play that, you know, yeah, he didn't score the goal, but that goal never gets scored if he's not up in the play. Um, and we'll hear from Cameron Gauntz later in this episode about uh, Brant Clark's tournament. But um, for a tournament where I believe that you could really only disappoint, you know, if you have the tournament you're expected to have, then okay, great, cool. Brant Clark went and got the points he needed to get, and and the shine is still on his uh, his. Rose, that's not an expression, but anyway, he went and didn't disappoint. It is now. Yeah, exactly. He delivered exactly what expectations were. So uh, that's my runner up, um, or excuse me, my honorable mention. Eddie, what is or who is your runner up for this week's King of the Week? Well, I think I, I tried to not be too cheeky with this, but uh, again, kind of representative of the penalty kill, which I think has been so important that has improved lately, and also the all around defensive play of the blue liners. I wanted to also recognize someone on the defensive end. Um, there wasn't anybody that I thought clearly stood out necessarily, but Matt Roy had a shorthanded goal against Vegas. Uh, he had an assist in the Boston game as well. He was a plus three player for, if you, you know, if you like that kind of thing, he was a plus three player against Vegas um, plays on the penalty kill as well. So I wanted to kind of recognize one of the defensemen for the way the decor has played of late. The, the penalty kill as well. And then a shorthanded goal from a defenseman is always a pretty cool thing. So I'm going to go with Matt Roy for my, uh, my runner up. I've said it before, but I'll say it again in this house. We respect plus minus. So a plus three right. is, is absolutely an important thing. Um, and that is a solid pick. I'm went ahead and picked his partner, Sean Dersey, um, who mm-hmm. was also a plus three um, also had two points, also had a goal and an assist. Same as Matt Roy, but get this Eddie. Um, Sean Dersey led the team in block shots over these three games. Nice. And um, played some of the strongest defense I think we've seen from Sean Dersey. I agree. And there was that he, he had one mistake that led to a two on one that I remember was, I can't remember if it was Boston or Vegas. And I was like, Oh no. Uh, I think it was, it was Vegas. But other than that, I thought he had a really strong game. And and he's the type of player that I think a strong game from him is a little bit louder, maybe, than a strong game, or at least in the defensive aspect. Um, and the Kings are going to need their defensive pairs, right? We've talked about it a little bit at this point. They've pretty much locked in these three pairs, uh, no pun intended. Um and the more they play together, the more experience they get playing with the forward lines, the better it's going to be. And if Matt Roy and Sean Dersey can start playing plus three hockey uh, every in three game stretches while also putting up 
four points between the two of them, so much the better. Um, it's only going to help the team immensely. But I did want to add in, um, I had uh, Copley, Kopitar, and Dersey as potential <laughs> um, runner-ups, and I was going to wait to hear who you had as your run-up to choose which uh, which way to go because this is one of those three game stretches where honestly any name you throw out for any you know obviously i think we'll agree on the king of the week but for honorable mention or runner up i think literally any name you tossed out they would have done something to contribute to to this week it was a really strong week yeah, and for what it's worth, and I could show you my work if you'd like. I've written some <laughs> notes here, but I had Copley and I had Dursey as considerations mm-hmm. as well. All right, so then let's get to the King of the Week. Like I said, I'll be stunned if uh, if we don't agree on this one. Yeah, I would I would as well. Um, Got to go Kevin Fiala. Uh, two assists in the win over Dallas, two primary assists, and the hat trick uh, against Vegas. You know, we all wondered if he was going to live up to the hype when we, when we brought him in. And... Uh, I absolutely think he has. Um, I actually think he's a better passer than I thought he was. Maybe we, maybe, maybe if you're going to quibble a little bit, I mean, he does take the occasional, uh, bad penalty and occasionally he'll try and fit a puck into a place that maybe he shouldn't. But more often than not, his, his ability to possess the puck to, I think, put the defense on their heels, make him respect his shot. Uh, you know, that 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 little pull and drag move that he had to change the angle in that goal against Vegas, and even his even his empty net goal was kind of pretty how he kind of pulled it back and put it in again. But uh, his his skill is as advertised, um, and uh, he's obviously made an impact and uh, certainly had a great great week for the Kings this week, and been named to the NHL All Star game. Yeah, for the first time. And I was thinking about it, and you're like, who else could it have been? There's really you know, he was the obvious choice. I, I you know, yeah, I, it was the, it had to be him. Yeah, yes, <laughs> it did absolutely have to be him. Um, you know, I was at the Standard Station um, watching the Kings Vegas game at a at a watch party uh, because the Standard Station happens to be five minutes away from my home, so I figured, why not? I'll go and uh, watch the game with a bunch of Kings fans. And you know, at some point. At some point, the mood of the room turned from rooting for a shutout for Copley mm. to rooting for a hat trick for Fiala. And the fact that the shutout bid was ruined, but then was instantly followed by the hat trick, took a lot of the sting off of uh, yeah. of losing the shutout. Um, Agreed. And yeah, he really has. I mean, just to not that this is representative of anything. um, I've been tracking, I made up my own little arbitrary point system for King of the Week rankings, and he's currently in second place, but this win will put him in first place um, uh, in the King of the Week standings. But to your point about his passing, it's not even just on the scores. It's sometimes he'll cross the blue line and whip the puck across the zone to a teammate streaking in, or he'll make a play to keep a play offside or or onside. Frequently, I'll find him catching line mates, almost not expecting the puck. Like, and, you know, we talked to Gabriel Velarde about, you know, is it almost, does it almost force you to raise your game playing with a guy that creative? I mean, he's. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. Uh, you better be ready at all times. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and that puts you kind of, uh, I don't know if on edge on alert, maybe would be the better way to kind of describe it. Uh, I, I it's like, uh, playing with magic Johnson in basketball. You better be ready for a pass at all times from anywhere. Cause uh, you can get it to you. So that's one of the sort of goofy little conversations we've been having up in the press boxes is regardless of position, regardless of contract status, career status, you know, what position you play, et cetera. Like who are the ideal line mates for Kevin Fiala? And there's three or four names that constantly get brought up. But the one thing they all have in common is they're guys who aren't afraid to shoot at any point in time because Kevin Fiala might find you. And so the ideal line mates for a guy like Kevin Fiala are guys that have to be not afraid and capable of shooting the puck from anywhere at any time and being dangerous with it. Um, And I'm not sure that there's many people on the Kings that fit that bill better than Gabriel Velarde, who we did not mention, but could have also been mentioned four points. Yeah. Yeah. I think the really encouraging thing about Gabe is, is are we going Gabe or Gabriel, by the way, does it matter? Does it, I have it in my head that somewhere in history, we were told that it's preferred Gabriel. And so I say Gabriel, but I can't honestly point to that thing. Like I know Michael Amadio, we knew it was Michael. Right. I have it in my head that Gabriel is the same situation, but I'm not confident about it. So I just sort of say Gabriel to hedge my bet. What gives me pause is when the public address announcer, when he scores a goal, (laughs) announces Gabriel Velarde, because I feel Mm -hmm. that's official. I'm like, maybe I should be calling him Gabriel, but I've been calling him Gabe. The the one thing I I like, uh, I love about Gabe this year is that there have been times, I mean, he got off to such a hot start and we were all so happy for him. Uh, and then, you know, he cooled off, but his play didn't cool off. You know, he was still, he was still making an impact, even though the, it wasn't because the, the, he was putting the puck specifically in the net and, uh, it wasn't like he got down, right. You know, he still mentally is staying in the game and doing things to impact, even though it's not necessarily lighting the lamp. So yeah, that's, that's been, that's been very encouraging to see from him. So congratulations, Kevin Fiala, this week's King of the Week. Eddie, before we let you go, um, I introduced you at the top of this, um, assuming that people would know what Locked on Kings is, where to find it. But if they don't, what is it and where do they find it? Well, it is a uh, daily uh, LA Kings podcast, Monday through Friday, um, about 20, 25 minute episode. Give you your hopefully your uh, your fix of the Kings uh, every day. Um, you can find it. There's YouTube episodes. There's also a podcast. If you just want to listen to the audio portion of it again, but it's pretty much everywhere you find your podcasts. And of course, YouTube locked on LA Kings. Uh, there's a, I guess guess there's a basketball team somewhere in Sacramento called the Kings as well. So you don't want to just do locked on Kings. (laughs) It's locked on LA Kings. So you don't have any confusion there. Uh, so that's, uh, that's where you can find me and, uh, social media. I know you're at least on Twitter. I, I confess I stopped using the rest of the, uh, social media yeah, a while ago. Yeah. Uh it's uh, at locked on LA Kings, the show, Twitter feed, and the personal account is Eddie on Fox, E D D I E. Uh Eddie on Fox. All right. And one final, final question before you go. I asked people this um before the season started. And I feel like the answer has shifted as the season has progressed. The question at the beginning of the year was if everything goes right. Right. And not everything will ever go right for any team in any sport. But if every what if 
goes, you know, breaks in favor of the Kings. What is the ceiling of this team? And the consensus at the beginning of the season, I think, was, and keep in mind, this is if everything broke in their favor, um, that the consensus was that this could be a cup contender if everything broke their way, right? The likelihood that everything breaks their way is nil and other teams are going to have more things break their way. But like, for example, a team like Anaheim or San Jose, if everything breaks their way, their ceiling is, I don't know, like maybe contending for a playoff spot. Maybe. Right. I, <laughs> um, I, got, I get what you're saying. So given how this season has gone, right. Uh, my answer maybe a, a month ago would have changed, but now, and now that we find ourselves here in January, I'll say with 43 games under their belt or whatever it is at this point, I'm not sure that I feel as strongly as I did at the start of the season because of certain storylines that have played out. But I still feel pr- like at this point, I'm looking at the ceiling of this team and I'm thinking, OK, well, third round. I, I, how do you feel? Uh, again, best case scenario for this roster. I would agree with that. Um I love the depth. I think the defense is coming around. The power play obviously has improved. Hopefully the penalty kill keeps tracking in this direction. The one thing that it's really hard for me to wrap my head around is what's going to go on in net. Is Phoenix Copley going to be able to continue this? The one thing that is encouraging to me is that he's not playing out of this world. He's just playing solid. If he were really playing out of his mind, then I I would be more confident this can't last. (laughs) But if he can just be solid and the Kings can play great around him, yeah, I I think it's possible. Um, If you'd have told me that for the season, I would have said you are insane. Uh, But that's one of the great things about sports. We think we know, and then something happens that blows our mind, and we're like, how in the world is this possible? But so far, it's been a great story, and I, you know, good for Phoenix Copley of taking advantage of his opportunity. But I, I do agree with you. If everything breaks right with the depth that we have and the way they're coming around defensively, um, I think there's a chance they could, there's a realistic chance they could make a deep run in the playoffs. Be nice to see. Eddie, thank you for joining me today. You know, we tried to make this happen earlier, but, uh, Sundays are tough. I know it is the Lord's Day. And in this case, the Lord <laughs> is the National Football League. So, uh, <laughs> I have a wife who is very devout. Yeah, uh, as that's a, right. As a yeah. as a Los Angeles Chargers die hard season ticket holder for twenty plus years. Yes, indeed. All right, Eddie Garcia, locked on Kings. Thank you very much. Thank you. Before we get to Cameron Gons, I'm not giving up on finding the original owner of this Purple Kings jersey, you guys. So I'm going to give another detail in the story in the hopes that this story will start to become more and more familiar to somebody out there. If you know anybody that might be able to fill in the missing details, have them email me at kingsmenpodcast at gmail.com. In September of 2002, I attended a preseason Kings game. The original owner of this jersey also attended that game, and at some point during the game, made a trade. They traded away this jersey. So now I need to find the person who can tell me when and where the trade took place, and what was traded in exchange for the jersey. I'm not giving up, you guys. I'm just not. Uh, One more thing before we get to Cameron. Our studio is not yet properly soundproofed, so you'll be able to occasionally hear the sounds of a dance class taking place down the hallway. 
I made the decision that recording in person with Cameron was worth whatever background noise we might encounter rather than doing it over Zoom. Hope it's not too distracting. One other, other thing before we get to Cameron. This episode wouldn't have been possible without the help of Ontario Rain video coach Cole Lucier. So Cole, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, and thank you very much for the assist. All right, it's time to recap the World Junior Championships. Joining me to do so, a man you've all demanded to have back on the podcast, Cameron Gons. How are you doing today, Cameron? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. Let's jump right into it. Otto Celine playing for Finland. Uh, obviously, Finland doesn't have the deep run that Canada and the U.S. does, so fewer games to judge from. And actually, before we get into Otto, I do want to talk to you. I think we probably talked about this last time, but I want to talk about the tournament in general because one of the issues that I have with the tournament, as much fun as it is, is that it's this incredibly short tournament, this incredibly short span of time. The kids are pulled from all their teams and then, you know, <laughs> just sort of thrown into the tournament, go play. And then we decide <clears throat> what it means if they play four games, five games, six games, you know, seven games for two of them. What are your thoughts about the tournament in general as an like as an evaluation tool? As an evaluation tool, you need to... I believe you need to look at it with the lens that there's a lot of variables you need to take into consideration. Mm. You can't just say, oh, well, this player played well this game because of this, this, and this, but the next game he was doing these reads differently because we don't know what system he's coming from, what system he's playing at the current time. Uh, we don't know what his teammates are like with this team compared to the other team. Um, there's there's just so many mitigating factors. Uh, like, Take like jumping ahead a bit, but Brand Clark guy hadn't played in a couple of weeks, and all of a sudden he's playing 22, 25 minutes a night. So you need to take that in consideration. And there's just so many different variables that come with it that it's hard. So what you really need to try to do is take away when you're going into what am I looking for specifically? What am I looking for from each one of these players, or what am I looking for as an evaluator? And for me watching this tournament, I tried to take more individual, individualistic stuff because when you make team oriented, uh, decisions on players or think about their habits, we don't know what they've been taught. We don't know what's been coached into them. So I need to try to take that away. So you try to be more individualistic. What are they doing, uh, apart from their teammates? Obviously how they work with their teammates. What are they doing apart from them? And how are they in certain situations? Cause that's what this tournament does. Um, they put them in situations that they may haven't been in the past or they accentuate some positives that they have shown in the past, like kind of Clark in the big games or Connors in the big games, like these things kind of accentuate it. So those are the type of things I'm kind of looking for in these tournaments. All right. And I'm just going to take this opportunity to once more complain about the tournament because <laughs> as much fun as I can have watching the games, I probably spend too much time watching the reaction to the games um, and all I see is fans piling on these kids and in my mind the tournament is just an opportunity to disappoint mm -hmm. like let's take Connor bedard Connor bedard is amazing well we knew that going in yeah. the expectation going in was oh Connor bedard's gonna do something cool and Connor bedard did something cool so we all walk away happy nobody's estimation of Connor bedard rose nobody walked away from this tournament going oh well i wasn't sure about Connor bedard <laughs> but now man oh man but if you have a bad tournament, or not even a bad tournament, if you have, if Connor Bedard had a slightly less than stellar tournament, yeah. now all of a sudden the conversation is, well, I don't know about Connor Bedard, mm -hmm. like, and so anyway, that. Well, what is what was this, uh, I believe the statement you said 
one of the other times I was on a podcast, happiness is measured by expectations, measured by expectations right? The, yep. So <laughs> if you're a fan coming into this hoping to be a critic, you're going to be a critic. Yeah. For me, I don't have social media, so I couldn't. I couldn't tell you what people are saying. All I know is I, as a hockey fan, I love the world juniors. There's stuff that doesn't happen in mm-hmm. NHL games. And there's that youthful, I'm going to use it to describe again, Clarky, um, youthful optimism that these guys play that you just don't see. It's kind of weeded out. Once you get to the pro game, you get that the fans, again, I, I'm a, I have maritime blood in me, so the <laughs> Halifax Moncton aspect to it, I loved. I love yeah. seeing the passion from the fans, um, being at games where no real, you don't have a country's uh, representation in the fan base that much. Yet they're still there. I love it. I love so many aspects of it. Um, of course, there's times in the tournament where you, sympathy isn't isn't the word I want to use, but some of these kids, you're reminded they're 17, they're mm-hmm. 18, and they're in such big stages that. You hope that they're going to rebound from whatever potential downfalls they might have during this time. But at the same time, you love to see how this might springboard them confidence-wise. Um, so for me, I go into this just as a fan and excited for a lot of these kids to get an opportunity and excited for the fans. Do me a favor. Yeah. Never get social media. <laughs> <laughs> the person I want to be doesn't have social media, but I'm not that person. <laughs> Uh, all right, so we're going to dive in here. Uh, I'm going to use Scott Wheeler's notebook as a sort of touch post for this. So of Otto Selene, he writes, Comfortable moving the puck down ice, which wasn't a theme for the rest of Finland's blue line. Sees the ice well, head always up, pivots in and out of space nicely. The youngest defenseman on the team, but he didn't look like it. I thought he played reasonably well. Does that? Yeah, it's... I kind of wish you didn't read that. Oh, but. sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm joking. I can edit it out. <laughs> I'm joking. No, he, my, the first thing I wrote, and I wrote it a couple times watching almost every one of his games, it looks like he plays the game in a rocking chair. Like he's just calm with and without the puck. Um, he's got great balance to his stride, both forwards, backwards, and really laterally. So when he plays like that, he just always looks like he's composed. He could be, there could be a four check bearing down on him. He could have the puck in the offensive zone with the defender coming right at him. He looks, calm he's got that sense about him of just kind of even keel and because of that even if he does make a mistake it looks like oh well you know there there was a reason for it he doesn't look out of place um the other thing that stood out to me was it might be a small minute detail but when he picks up the puck around his own net his ability to cut the corner on the net leave the defender kind of hanging on that net and get up ice was something I I'm going to stop you there. Sorry. Cut the corner on the net. Is that like using the net as a pick when guys? Yes. Okay. Sorry, because I guess there's no real corner to a net. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's fine. I just <laughs> yeah, when, when you're getting the net, you want to try to reach the far end of the net, um, the other side of that, pardon me, and get to the as tight as you can to the post so that the defender can't come to the inside of you. So you know that he is essentially on your back. Mm-hmm. And when he when auto reached that point, his next stride out was so powerful and so balanced that the defender behind him, the four-checker, pardon me, was unable to catch up. So he's able to create separation. So by creating that separation, the next play he makes is that much easier because now he can make passes to his forehand, to his backhand. He doesn't have to worry about the defender potentially lifting his stick, and then he's able to continue to move up ice. He did that a number of times, especially in the game for me that really stood out was the Latvia game. I thought he played his best game of the tournament. Um, he was, like I said, picking up the puck, hanging defenders on it. He got lots of ice time that game. So obviously the coaches saw kind of what I was seeing, especially four on four with that open ice. 
he was able to create a lot more than other players were. He was getting opportunities in the offensive zone, off the rush. Um, his gap, I thought, was really good throughout the tournament. He was a defenseman that didn't leave the offensive blue line quite as early as some of these other defensemen might. Um, so I don't know if that's because he's played pro, so he's understood that typically that's how you need to nullify it. But he did an excellent job, and I, I believe Scott, when he said that he was one of the most confident defenders offensively, I, I couldn't put it any better. They had some defensemen who might have been a bit more assertive offensively, but that wasn't as comfortable as Otto was during it. So a couple things. Um, when you say that you know it's difficult to judge these kids because you don't know what the coaching staff is asking for, where they're coming from, are the things you're talking about like gap control compared yes. to teammates? That's how you separate those? For the, that's one thing exactly because mm-hmm. uh, usually in the pro game, that's one of the main things they're harping on, especially when you first get it is gap control. Because when you're playing junior hockey and you're a skater like Otto, you could hang back a bit. You can leave them, give them a bit more space because when they come in, his stick skills are so good that even if the forward has too much time and space, he's going to be able to shrink that or he knows that the shot coming from most of the defenders and ju- most of the players in junior, if it's from a distance, it's not going in. So that once you start playing in a pro game like he has – that's one of the things you start to learn to do more. You start staying up in the play more, nullifying time and space. So yeah, it might be uncomfortable, but it's also uncomfortable in the other team. So you need to live in that world of kind of being comfortable in the uncomfortable. And Otto clearly has done that um, in his career because he's able to do that. And then, like I said, with the puck, that's one thing that some other teams might not kind of work on. When junior hockey, when you get the net, you don't have to be as diligent tucking your shoulder to that post because his strides are so powerful that he's creating separation without that, without the aid of the net. Whereas in this tournament against better players, he needed to have that ability. Um, he needed to have that little, I'm not going to say trick, but advantage in his pocket of using the net to create that separation. And he was doing it when other players might not. So that's something that if a player isn't doing it, you kind of look, okay, why isn't he doing that? Well, he's been playing junior hockey with this team. His skating so strong that he hasn't had to do it. Uh, why is a defender's gap not great? Well, maybe his team, what they uh, they preach more of a just back off the blue line, give the team space, give your forwards time to get back in the rush. So those are some things that for me, I, I try not to judge too hard on because I, I don't know what he's been taught by his coaching staff here and back home. What, so gap control and, and gap, talking about gaps is something that before I knew what it meant mm-hmm. as a fan, yeah. I, I heard people occasionally throwing it into a sentence and i was just like well, i don't know what <laughs> now that i know what it means of course yeah <clears throat> but for those who don't because sure there are people who may not the gap control is just the distance between a defender and an oncoming attacker yes yes so gap control is essentially if, if i'm the defenseman on the offensive blue line mm. the space between myself i'm the left wing if i'm the left defenseman the space between me and the right winger is essentially the gap so when you keep the gap tight that means you're not leaving the offensive blue line too early because when you leave the offensive blue line too early to retreat, essentially, to go back to your own zone, the separation or the gap between you and the attacking forwards increases. So when that increases, that gives them more time and space to make plays that they want to make and also garner speed and gain speed and momentum coming into the zone. That makes it harder to defend later on, and that makes your whole team have to kind of play on your heels. By staying up in that player's uh I'm not going to call it pocket, but in staying up in their space, that means they can't make the plays they want to make, and it makes it easier for you to defend. It's kind of counterintuitive. You think, well, I want as much space as possible. I want to be able to 
make them come to me, which again, there's times in the game you want that, but leaving the offensive blue line, typically you don't want that. You want to nullify that as much as possible so that they don't have as much speed and they don't have the creativity and time to be as creative as they probably could be. One of the reasons that I think I probably blanked on the phrase and and the thing for so long is that when you're if you're watching the game from a highlight standpoint Mm -hmm. most of the highlights right happen near the goal mouth yep and you know there there have been players in the past that me and my dad would would watch the game and we'd go there's this defenseman i think i almost (laughs) um, say there's this we'd say there's this defenseman on the ice and he made a mistake but it doesn't turn into a goal until 45 seconds later. Mm-hmm. And so it never shows up on the highlight. It doesn't, in your sort of immediate reaction to a goal, you're not thinking, oh, that guy blew that play. But how do you, and I'm, I don't want to burn too much time on this, but how, how, like, if, where's the line between pinching too m- aggressively, getting beat, and mm-hmm. now you're chasing the guy and maintaining that tight gap control? See that excellent question because so many teams have different rules. Mm-hmm. Like I, for me to say what's right and what's wrong is uh, arbitrary because you don't know what the team is telling the defenseman. Okay. Because there are some teams that really want as tight of a gap as, but like I played for one team in pro hockey that when the offensive team was leaving the blue line, even if I didn't have my feet moving, which <laughs> some, <laughs> a lot of times doesn't happen, if my, even if my feet aren't moving, you want to get a piece of the guy. So then what happens is he then can't make the play. He might be able to move the puck and progress the puck forward, but then it gives time for their other players to come out. Whereas other teams have played for it was just take away the center of the ice, leave as much time for the uh, for your own players to get back into a position to defend. And there's always different things. So knowing Knowing you as a player, because you need to know how good of a skater you are, and knowing what type of system your team's playing, if it's a constantly funneling through the neutral zone, I mean, through the middle of the ice, a retreating team, you know you've got the ability to stay up a bit tighter. Whereas if you're a team, if you're a player who may might, might not be the best skater, you need to work on your angles a bit, uh, and your team is very go, go, go in the offensive zone where you might not have that third forward high, you need to be a bit more defensive leaving the offensive blue line. Any uh, other notes in there about Celine? I saw you had quite a bit, and I don't want to. Yeah, no, not a problem. Force I, you to watch those games and then not, <laughs> not get the notes out. No, uh, the only thing la- last time I didn't do a good enough job of. Uh, I, I find as a, when I'm watching, especially other sports, I like getting the player comparables, mm. um, just because my simple mind it makes. Oh, that means what he's like. Sure. For me, the guy uh, I played with him for a bit in Dallas. That he reminds me a bit of is Alex Goligoski on okay. Minnesota. Just someone who's effortless when he's playing the game of hockey he just looks like he can skate for days can play for days and he makes the right place he's not if you like you said watch the highlights there's not going to be tons of nights where he's jumping off the page at you offensively or defensively he's just someone who can play the game and he plays the game extremely comfortable because of his skating in every motion of the ice in every direction of the ice and that was kind of what i was getting now again Golgowski shoots left auto shoots right but I think that that's something that I found um, pretty apparent as they look similar out there. Does the fact that, that he's a right shot defenseman and plays, uh, <laughs> you know, a smooth skating puck moving offensive, like, does he just fit into that chain of, yeah. you know, Dersey, uh, Walker, Spence, Clark? Like, yeah, I okay. see I see a bit of difference with him and the others in just that he's a bit more 
comfortable with the skating. Like, mm-hmm. I, just e- each of them have a different uh, different style they're skating, whereas he seems to be more kind of like if you watch Matt Roy play, he's someone who's comfortable skating. Okay. Now, now Otto isn't quite as big and quite as defensively sound as Roy, so I wouldn't compare the two. But just skating-wise, just someone who looks comfortable on their edges no matter where they are on the ice. And that's kind of more what he looked like skating-wise. With the puck, though, yeah, he's of that ilk in the sense that he can move the puck, he can get up in the play, and on the offensive blue line, regardless of how the defending team's playing, he's going to be comfortable. So if I'm not mistaken, excuse me, five games, zero goals, three assists, plus four. Do we take anything from that stat line? Um, Yeah, in in the sense that, like uh, Scott talked about in his description, they didn't score a ton of goals. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he had even three assists in that many games and he was plus four, considering they lost a couple games, is pretty good. Again, I didn't see the underlying numbers. I didn't look too much into that. I didn't want to let that. Um, kind of interfere with my just eye test, if you will. Sure. Because again, you, there's so much to do with uh, analytics that it can sometimes sway your opinion. So I just wanted to watch it. And he seemed like someone who contributed offensively. He wasn't playing power play, so he wasn't put in exactly situations to succeed offensively. Um, but he was still able to create offense five on five. All right, let's go to Kenny Connors, who played for Team USA. Um, you and I are both Canadian, so mm-hmm. we're going to finish with Canada last. Um, do you want me to read Scott Wheeler's? Uh, sure, of- yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> All right. Ejected in the second game for boarding, didn't play much the rest, and was probably the Americans' least noticeable play- least noticeable player when he did until the semifinal, which was his best game of the tournament and warranted the player of the game nod. He got four shots, more than fifty minutes of ice time, a goal, forced turnovers, and spent a bunch of shifts in the offensive zone. I think that's a fair assessment for Scott, but because I was watching him, I found him noticeable in the sure. sense, right? <laughs> sure. And in the sense that he's a player that's going to do every every time I watched the game, I kept writing down the same thing. He's just a disciplined player. He's always in the right spot. He's a defenseman dream in the sense that he backtracks towards the puck. The, the way I think about it is a, is a receiver who on a on a hook play where he's just running ten yards, turn around, there's the ball. He's the play, he's the receiver that runs back towards the ball. So when when I'm a defenseman looking for a pass, he's not stationary. He's coming back towards me, trying to create that opening. Um, on the penalty kill, he was excellent. The states played a penalty kill. I don't think I've ever really seen before in the D zone. I've seen alt, uh, alterations of it, but essentially they played almost positionless. So I saw Kenny end up almost in front of his own net, boxing players out because they kind of just went on a. I don't even know how to describe it. Almost like just a rotating diamond. And he was able to do that flawlessly. Uh, he took face-offs, but I don't think I saw him win one, so I'm not going to say he was. But they he's clearly good enough at them that the coach believed that he mm-hmm. can do that. Um, he was just someone who was always in the right position. He was always backing up his forward. He was always backing up his defenseman. He was hard in the forecheck. And I think in the games, I think the reason why he was able to succeed in the harder games, in the best games of the tournament, was because he played the exact same game he did against the other teams. It's just against the other teams, he might not have been as noticeable because he wasn't, I'm not saying cheating the game in the wrong way because I'm not saying the other guys were, but he was put in a position as a fourth-line player that he just they wanted him to essentially play the game, don't hurt us, play the penalty kill, help us out in that sense, and that's exactly what he did. Then, against the best teams, his game continued and he played the exact same way and it worked because he went to the net. Both goals were goals going to the net um, against Canada. He was good on the forecheck, good in the neutral zone. He's hard to get a bit more confidence as the tournament went on with the puck. 
something that reminded me a bit of Sam Hellenius' tournament in the summer, where as the tournament went on, he kind of realized how he fit in with the team, how he fit in in the game, and he showed a bit more strength and confidence with the puck. So, no, he wasn't their most noticeable offensive player throughout the tournament, but for what his role was, he might have been one of their best forwards at playing the role that was given to him. There's a little feature of... uh Figure skating that yeah. I like. And it's a sport I'm not particularly fond of. <laughs> I do love the costumes. No, it's the notion of, of degree of difficulty, right? They, they, if you choose a simple program and you execute it, you get points for that, but you also get points deducted for choosing a simple program. Mm-hmm. And I, not that this is a perfect comparison, but I'll take Mullet Arena, the where the Arizona Coyotes play, where, yeah. which I went out to. And everybody asks, oh, how is it? How is it? How is it? And every response has to begin with, for what it is, yep. it's great. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to hold it up against, you know, yeah. Crypto.com <laughs> Arena or what, some of the other newer buildings. Like yeah. it, it, we know what it is, and yeah. I, and I think one of the reasons some of my favorite players are Dan Bylsma, Ian Laperriere, Trevor Lewis, stuff like that, is because again, it comes back to that happiness is measured by expectations. When your expectations are measured and then exceeded. You appreciate it. Exactly. And for, for a coach, when you're making up a team, you want to know what you're getting out of each player. There's some players that come with a bit more uh, risk, reward, but what Kenny did was he played his role exactly the way he wanted. He wanted a certain type of game out of him, and that's exactly what he got. He never hurt the team once. He took ice time that was given to him, and he succeeded in it. And then he even ended up paying off at the end of the tournament by playing his two best games in the in the semis and then unfortunately because they lost in the bronze medal game. So though I understand from Scott who has to look at it all, uh, every player and he writes, obviously does an excellent job doing it. Um, for someone who is, was in a different perspective from me, I thought he did exactly what he needed to do from start to finish. He never hurts the team once is. Yeah. That's all I need to hear. I mean, I appreciate the rest of it, but (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Um, and again, like when I look at, Every one of the games, it's unselfish player, makes the right pass, covers for defensemen when they pinch, makes himself available for passes all over the ice, no matter the player. Um, the other thing that stood out to me was when he'd was when he be on the forecheck or when he'd finish checks in neutral zone, he always led with the stick. Um, I say that because a lot of times there might be big hits, which are obviously a lot of fun, um, and they do take the player out of the play. But some most of the time, that means they're not their stick isn't on the ice, so they're not nullifying the pass. So the play is able to continue. Whereas when Kenny would forecheck, his stick would be on the ice, usually nullifying a play or putting it in a lane that made a defender have to make an alternate play. Then he would finish his check. It might not be as big of a hit, but it accomplishes more in the macro, if you will, than in the micro. And so because I was that, because I'm a defenseman and constantly trying to find where uh, opposing player sticks are, that was something I really appreciated about his game. Here's something that's been fascinating to me over the last couple of weeks, and I'd, I'd never really thought about it before, I don't think. And that is how specific forward lines combine with specific D mm. pairs. And so you were talking about how he's a defenseman's dream. And the reason it started occurring to me is that uh, there's a pair that I always go back to in, in King's history. It's Alec Martinez and uh, and Jake Muzzin. Because on paper, and when I say on paper, I just mean – you know, their possession metrics 
would suggest that they would were a good pair, but they would leak goals against. I mean, I think they were like near the top of the league in you know Corsi and expected and all that, and near the bottom of the league in actual like goals for and hmm. goals against. Two very good defensemen, right? Yeah. Alec Martinez has gone on. Jake Muzzin has gone on, and that's why I feel quite so comfortable talking about it because I'm not tossing them under the bus and saying, well, these are, you know, this is a crap pair, so it makes sense. Like, these were good players who were effective on different pairs, and for whatever reason, the two of them did not work. And and it never occurred to me to go back and look at who they played with most frequently as a forward line. Can a forward line have that much impact on... A defense pair's effectiveness. I think enormously. Like it's it's not something you think about because a lot of the time with four four lines and three D pairings, there's going to be switches during the game. Like mm-hmm. There's just going to be times in the game where coaches might not get out who they want to. But um, I think there's a huge because potentially they're playing against the other team's best lines, and maybe they've got their third or fourth line on the ice with them. So if you're on the ice with a line that is more defensive minded, your offensive stats might not be as high. Um, you might be getting defensive zone starts, which means usually you're out with, again, a defensive-minded line. So then your offensive stats or you're out with an offensive line. So sure, your offensive stats might be great, but in your own zone, you look at the stats, there's tons of passes to the slot or there's tons of shots from the point that go unguarded or there's the entry into zone is much higher against this defenseman because they don't have the same back pressure as other lines. So there are certain things that... Um, will definitely work better with certain forward lines. So the best coaches usually try to find what complements each other or sometimes they just go with all gas, no brakes and just put the best offensive defensive out there, the best forwards all the time and just try to create what they can and try to put the best defensive with the best defensive forwards and just try to do it that way. So it's something that, again, I didn't think about either until I got to pro hockey because in junior hockey, you just play as much as you can and see how it goes. But once pro hockey came around, you started realizing everyone's got such defined roles amongst teams. Uh, it was something that really started to come to fruition. So that feels like a good transition point to talk about Brian Clark yeah. uh, because I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Scott again. Played with a ton of confidence, rose to the moment, chose his spots on when to take space with or without the puck inside the offensive zone, a disallowed goal for offside on a blast from the point that would have added to his totals. There were times when he was overthinking it or a little sloppy defensively, but that comes with the territory with him. Canada's most active defenseman inside the offensive zone, even more so than Zellweger. A few really nice stretch passes that he recognized early. Loves the moment and the stage. Fearless. Thought he was tremendous in the gold medal game in every moment but the Czech's second goal. Again, better than I could have ever said it myself. (laughs) I thought he did. Clarkie was best... um, I keep using him as his nickname just mm-hmm. because I, he was my defense partner for three games this year. So um, I thought Brant was really good. You can call him Clarky. That's fine. Okay. I just <laughs> – see, when sometimes when announcers are using nicknames for guys like their best friends, I'm not claiming to be. Yeah. Just yeah. – no, yeah, yeah. I played with him. So that was what I was calling him. What um, would you call – what would you say if the door opened and he was standing on the other side of it? Well, first of all – no, actually. What no, are you no, doing no, here? No, 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 <laughs> never mind. I'll call him Clarky. All right. Okay. Clarky it is. So Clarkie was excellent in the biggest moments, like he said. I thought he was the best player, player, not defenseman, on the ice in overtime in the finals, which, again, that's what you want. When we talked about tournament like this, what are you looking for from these players? From him, what I'm looking for is the biggest moments. I want him to shine, and he did. Um, he made plays defensively in overtime that probably will go unnoticed, but he broke up a couple plays out of the corner, broke up a rush, uh, 
I'm not going to give him a ton of credit for the assist on the last goal because the player coming down on him just didn't just lost the puck. But at the same time, because Clark was in the right position, he got the puck. Um, I mean, the pass wasn't because the guy lost the puck. That's true. Because again, he could have gone try to go direct play, but instead he went indirect off the boards and it made things that much easier for his forwards. He did an excellent job at all the things that Brent Clark is good at. And I thought there were a few parts to his game that if he wasn't in pro hockey to start the year out, it wouldn't have been as good. There was a few things he did that I didn't see other guys doing as much. Um, and I think that's because of his development once he got here. Those were, because I see you. <laughs> I thought he blocked shots better than most, if not all, defensemen I was watching. How, how does that so improve why it's, from pro hockey? It, it improves from pro hockey just because of his technique and the idea behind it, the kind of the conception, the, con- the concept behind it. When you're in junior hockey and you're blocking shots, it's, again, I'm going to use the expression again, all gas, no breaks. Mm-hmm. There's a puck. I'm going to get in front of it. I'm going to get the guys on my team smacking the boards. Bring it. Whereas in pro hockey, it's, yeah, that's great. I want to get my team excited, but there's a lot more to the play. Like, I need to block this shot and then be prepared for the next play. And I thought the way he was blocking shots, he did it a few where it was just kind of shots from the point. And he did what's called fronting, which is when you get in front of the offensive player. Um to block the shot he did that a couple times and by doing that it just ended the play that's something that defensemen don't do as often in junior hockey and the other thing he did was when shots would be coming he would go down to a compact position block the shot and be able to bounce right back up and be prepared and controlled to make the next play those are things that in junior hockey a lot of defensemen aren't doing if that puck's coming they're selling out they're laying down which laying down is not the worst thing i'm not trying to make it sound like the word but if it's a shot where you can stop yourself from doing that and be able to get back up, it means that you're not out of the play. And potentially you can make the next play. And that's one thing Clark was able to do that I didn't watch him play junior before, but I assume he wasn't doing, and he was doing that exceptionally well. And that's something that they work on here. Another thing he was doing very well was his boxing out. Um, So when the offensive players would pass the puck to the point, or there would be a high cycle and there would be a forward going to the net, Clarky's ability to keep two hands on a stick and direct the player where he wanted them to go was better than most other defensemen I watched. And his timing of when to lift the offensive player's stick when the puck was coming was better than a lot of the other defensemen. What's the danger in having bad timing on that? So if you have bad timing on it, it could mean if you lift the stick too early, then the defend, the, the offensive player knows, okay, that's where the pressure's coming from. Okay, uh, when this puck comes, I know how to get out of it and then tip the puck. But by timing it properly... It means that you're lifting the stick right up potentially point of impact, which means the goalie doesn't have to make a second reaction. It's just, okay, there's the puck coming. I can make the save. But when you don't have when you don't have that timing, it means the goalie then has to try to react off that tip and the offensive player gets what he wants out of the play. And one thing Clarky was able to do was he puts guys in the position he wants them, which means that it's a less dangerous position and it means the goaltender is able to see the puck and his timing on when to lift the stick was, I thought, something that a lot of the other players I watched wasn't nearly as good. And those are things that, again, I could be wrong, but I know they're things that they really work on here and that I didn't learn until pro hockey. So is he, you know, we talk about expectations and, and you know, mullet arena and all that. I mean, going in, he's one of those players where you want to see him have an excellent tournament. Yep. Would you say he had an excellent tournament? He did. Okay. He, especially because what you wanted out of him. Like if I'm a 
if I'm an evaluator of this tournament, I know that he's going to be one of the best defensemen in the tournament, but I want to see him show the things that make him a special player. That's what exactly what he did. In the big moments, he was unflappable. Um, he was able to create offense when there was nothing there. Um, he was able to play with teammates that, again, he yes, he knows a couple of them from minor hockey, but he hasn't really played with, and he's still able to drive offense. He created plays on the rush. He created plays in zone. His goal was a great instance of him jumping into space in the offensive zone that others might not have seen. Um, his play on the, I think it was Canada's second goal against U.S. when he came in off the blue line. Again, he took what was given to him. Offensive zone play. Yes, they ran it earlier in the game. What the other defenseman did was the other defenseman on the earlier goal, he stayed wide, made a pass to the front of the net. Clarkie saw that as he walked, once the faceoff was won back to him at the right point, when he walked down into the offensive zone, he realized the USA clearly talked about this between periods, and now they have a different defensive alignment. Problem was, there was a bit of confusion. And that's what happens when you attack, is you create confusion because they have to make decisions. And no one made a decision to go to Clarkie. So instead of just staying in what was normal route for him, which would have been stay kind of along the boards, look for the pass, he took the space given to him, went to the net, attacked, and created an opportunity for his team, which led to a goal. Um, those are things you want to see from Clarkie because that's what his strengths are. And you don't want to, you don't want him to play any other way than how he plays. Yeah, there's some things that, it, like Scott talked about, that he can clean up, but Clarkie can do things others can't. The things that he, probably needs to improve on are things that will get drilled into him and a lot of us have learned but we can't learn what he can do so i thought he exemplified exactly what you'd want from him i'm going to try and blend two topics one is the the last time you were here and we talked about the world juniors and i mentioned players teammates uh whacking their stick on the ice yeah um and you know you said it's helpful but it can also be a bit much at times yeah the reason I bring it up is because on Clark's second goal of the tournament, I think, which was against Team USA, yeah. he's up at the top of the slot. There's goal mile scramble. His teammate has the puck off to his right, and he's yeah. banging his stick. The guy takes talent, the yeah. shot, and he winds up getting the rebound. Um, and then the second thing that I want to mesh into the conversation is when he was drafted, and we were all pouring over all of the interviews and clips that we could find of him. Uh, there was an interview with him where he was asked about how he adapted his game to play the pro leagues. Um, I'm blanking on which country he went to go play. Uh, the, probably. Um, and the quote was, and I don't want to get the quote wrong, but I'm sure I will. It, it, the quote essentially was, well, I didn't adjust my game. They, I made them adjust to me. But he didn't say <laughs> it in like an arrogant way. He said it like matter-of-factly. Like they're, not used Clark, to, yeah. they're not used to a kid a defenseman jumping up into the play as frequently as he did. Mm -hmm. And so after a while they got used to it and the style of play shifted when he was on the ice. The reason I mention all that is in a short tournament like that, you know, and this happens in game six, not even game seven. How, what is the learning curve for a team to get used to a guy who at Brant Clark has a, I'll, I appreciate his speaking style, but yeah. it, it is unique and I'm yeah. sure it can be a lot to take <laughs> in if you're not expecting it. Um, and to be that all breaks, no gas or uh, all gas, no breaks, yeah. excuse me. Um, banging the stick, being aggressive, jumping into the play. Like how long does it take for a player to learn how to adapt to a team and for a team to learn how to adapt to a player like that? It's easier to adapt to a guy like that 
because then you can read off of him. When you go into a decision, uh, a team like that, and you're trying to figure out how to play with others, decisiveness is kind of what really indecisiveness. Part of me is kind of what really hurts players because then you don't know what to expect. Okay. When you can go into it, not everyone can like like Clarkie does, and this is who I am. This is how I'm playing because you can see it defensively too. Like when I watched him play, he's pointing, he's telling guys where to go. Even some sometimes it's a bit innocuous. Like I know who's got who, but he's still reaffirming that for everyone. By doing that, it makes it easier for everyone else. It's okay. I know exactly what I'm getting from Clarkie. I know exactly when he wants the puck. He's calling for it. He's beaver tailing sometimes, <laughs> which could get on guys' nerves. Um, but when it works, it's great. Uh, it's easier for everyone else because then you can read off. It's kind of what I tell my – I've usually played with uh, over the years. I usually play with the offensive younger D-men. It's kind of been who I've always played with. And whenever I first start playing with them, my first thing is to say to them is be as just be yourself and be as decisive as you can because then it's easier for me to read off of you. If I know exactly what you're doing, I know what I have to do off of you. So if everyone knows on the team, I know what Clark he's going to do because I can hear it or I can see what he's going to, I can see what he's going to do based upon the other stuff he's done. Then it's easier for them to read off. Okay. I know exactly how to go from there. And not a lot of guys have that kind of confidence about them, but he does and he has it in spades. And that's what a lot of us in hockey wish we had was that type of confidence. And he has it and then some. So he's been assigned back to Barry. Yep. What would you hope to see out of him for the rest of his? year in, in Barry. I wish I looked at the standings. I'm not sure how Barry's doing, but I want to see him. Allegedly, they're looking to acquire Shane Wright, so I'm assuming they're trying to make a, the, a Memorial I, Cup run. Then I want to see him with potentially Shane Wright <laughs> or whoever else they pick up kind of take be a driving force and take that team deep in the playoffs. I'm not going to say win because mm-hmm. going into any playoffs um, to say I expect this team to win or expect that team to win is unfair because you don't know what's going to happen with injuries Great goaltending, team gets hot at the right time, especially with teenagers who knows who hits a growth spurt at what time. Um, but I want to see him take it to his team far and put them on his back because he has that ability. I just hope that with Clarkie, he doesn't go down and is just content with the season he had. You know, already got nine NHL games, already won a world junior gold, was one of the best defensemen in the tournament. You know, that sets me up well for next year's training camp. I hope that that's, and knowing him, that. The little I do know him, that's not going to be the case. He's going to want to be the best player on the ice every time he steps on the ice. I just hope that that's what he does. He tries to be the best player every night and demands that of his teammates. Before I let you go, anything else in your notebook there about uh, Brent Clark? Oh, Brent Clark. Um, but, 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 oh, the one thing I was thinking about three-on-three, three, to go back to that, mm-hmm. just to harp on just how good he was. I find three-on-three three in that tournament to be one of the best markers of in, of an individual's skill in hockey sense. Oh, wow, okay. Because five on five, they've got some systems to it, mm-hmm. right? You've got certain things that each team's kind of being taught. Um, three on three, there's none. All bunch of players playing from all over the world, come together, play together, let's see what you've got. You have to make reads in three on three that you're not making five on five as much. I guess, sure, there's still similar ones. But when you're out there three on three, you're left on an island quite often. And you can see just how good a player is at reading the offense, reading the defense, reading the other players, what their strengths, what their weaknesses are. Um, and it really kind of puts a microscope on, okay, what's his skating like or what's his play with the puck like? And I thought, again, that's where he played his best. When he was put to the test um, offensively and defensively, that's when he was at his best. 
Excellent. Well, Cameron Gons, you are always at your best. We appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, we'll let you get off to practice here. Thank you very much.